Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Ward Carroll, the Director of Outreach for the Naval Institute. Joining me is my usual co-host, Bill Hamlet, the Editor-in-Chief of Proceedings Magazine. Hello, Bill. Hey, Ward. The last couple of weeks, you've uh, either been solo or been with uh, Bill Bray. Uh, so, You've been a busy boy on the uh, road yeah, and on the here road. and there. Yep, and trying to get the magazine out last week. Uh, you interviewed a b- bunch of uh, surface Navy WTIs over, yes. at, the, over at SNA. Yes, as um, we were live on the scene over there in uh, D.C. talking to some sharp young lieutenants, the best of the best in the surface warfare community. So if you haven't listened to that show from last week, I very much recommend it. Uh, great, great conversation we had with, uh, with the WTIs and... This is a nice segue. It is. Because you are moderating a panel at West. So right, right. let's talk to the folks about what's going on with West first off and then your panel. Yeah. So our annual West conference uh, coming up in uh, February 13th through 15th uh, of February uh, at the San Diego Convention Center, as it always is. The theme for this year is called, it's uh, Sharpening the competitive edge. Are we ready to compete, deter, and win globally? So uh, very much focused on the 2018 National Defense Strategy, uh, high-end threats, peer competition, etc. Uh, some confirmed keynote speakers across the two and a half days include uh, the Honorable Ellen Lord, the Undersecretary of Defense for Acquisition and Sustainment, the Honorable Thomas B. Modley, the Undersecretary of the Navy, Admiral Chris Grady, Commander, U.S. Fleet Forces Command, Admiral Richardson, the CNO, uh, General Neller, the Commandant of the Marine Corps, and uh, Admiral Schultz, the Commandant of the Coast Guard. Uh, And as you mentioned, um, so you talked to uh, some surface WTIs, weapons and tactics instructors, uh, the three different flavors that the surface Navy now has. At West, in one of the engagement theaters, there's going to be a conversation. Uh, I'll moderate a panel of uh, WTIs across all the Navy domains. So the submarine community has WTIs, surface Navy. Uh, the WTI program started within tactical aviation. Uh, the information warfare community now has WTIs as well. So we're going to have uh, rotary a, wing community. A rotary wing community. So we're going to have a WTI of all flavors, one of, one of each flavor, to talk about what the Navy is doing writ large with the uh, weapons and tactics program. Uh, how that's impacting career paths, how those different WTI communities in the different parts of the Navy are sharing lessons learned and best practices, uh, et cetera. So it should be a really great conversation. I always love talking to JOs. uh, So having a a bunch of lieutenants talk to us about what's going well, what's not going well, uh, what they wish to see in 2019 and 2020. Uh, across their warfare communities will be an exciting conversation. So, and that will be also an episode of the podcast that week. So, uh, so if you are going to be in San Diego or live in the San Diego area, sign up for the West Conference. And there's also a Naval Institute member event uh, at the Ultimate Skybox on the 14th of February. Uh, so that's a, a great event. Uh, yeah, that's really last a, awesome. That's a must. It really it's is like like the party yeah, of the season. Yeah, so all of yeah. the honor, you know, the honorables and the admirals and the you know and the the WTIs uh, and Naval Institute members and our board of directors and our editorial board members and uh, authors, book authors, proceedings authors, uh, people are there. They're mixing it up. They're having great conversations, talking about what happened uh, at West and what will happen. You know, the the next day. 
about the, uh, the you know the latest and greatest and what needs to happen in the Navy Marine Corps and Coast Guard. So uh, always a great event. And if you're a Naval Institute member, it's free. So uh, you know sixty five dollars to be a Naval Institute member, and you get uh, all of that back in free food and drinks and entertainment. Absolutely at the Ultimate uh, Skybox. At, at the Ultimate Skybox yeah. uh, in San Diego. So it's a it's a really good event. Um, the next thing I wanted to mention, uh, as all of our members know, uh, the government shutdown is impacting directly the Department of Homeland Security, and the Department of Homeland Security is the parent agency of the U.S. Coast Guard. So our Coast Guard shipmates are on duty uh, 24-7, 365 out there. Uh, protecting against illegal drugs coming into the United States, uh, conducting search and rescue missions, inspecting the merchant fleet, um, keeping safe the maritime transportation sector um, uh, of the United States, guarding our, our coasts uh, and supporting uh, combatant commanders around the world with four deployed forces, and they are not getting paid. So they missed their first uh, missed payday was on the 15th of January right now, since uh, the government doesn't seem to be able to uh, bridge this impasse. Um, it looks like the one February uh, payday is uh, is in question for the Coast Guard as well. And uh, for all of those of us who served in the Navy, especially when we were junior, the ability to absorb a uh, a missed payday, you know, very very few people can afford that. It's yeah. really it's really non-existent. Particularly people who live in you know high cost coastal areas, and that's where the Coast Guard you know ninety nine percent of the Coast Guard is. Um, so we have published in the last two weeks uh, a very nice piece by Admiral Thad Allen, former Coast Guard Commandant. Um, that was two weeks ago. Uh, last week, we had Admiral Zukunft, the just uh, retired uh, Coast Guard Commandant. And then yesterday we published, or sorry, earlier today we published uh, Rear Admiral Kerry Thomas, who was um, an assistant uh, Coast Guard Commandant, uh, District 14 Commander, a co career cutterman, and she is now the CEO of the Coast Guard Mutual Assistance Association, um, sort of like the Navy Relief Society for the Coast Guard, uh, talking about the impact to young uh, Coast Guardsmen and their families and how they are trying to cope uh, you know, with without being paid. So it's uh, it's a real crisis. Uh, it's one that Admiral Allen's piece in, in uh, proceedings today. Uh, he brought home a, a very personal story growing up as the son of a of a Coast Guard chief. Uh, and then Admiral Zukunft basically said that um, you know that the nation is breaking faith with uh, its service members in the Coast Guard who've sworn to protect and defend the Constitution and are doing so and now are not getting paid. And then uh, Admiral Thomas just today writing about how Coast Guard people who need help can get help uh, through her organization, uh, and um, uh, and how if you are you know if you want to help them, uh, you can donate uh, to Navy Relief, you can donate to CGMA, the Coast Guard Mutual Assistance, um, and and help those uh, co young Coast Guard people make it through the next payday, and, and hopefully uh, this political impasse will end soon. Um, so I, I will uh, tell our, our listeners that um, the article by Admiral Allen is now the most read article uh, in the history of our website. So we've had roughly 60,000 people read Admiral Allen's piece. Um, a, a close second, Admiral Zukunft, he had 40-some thousand people read his uh, his piece. So uh, two high-impact uh, articles in proceedings or proceedings today by, uh, you know, uh, retired Coast Guard leaders. And I, I um, 
applaud both of them for what they wrote. They stayed uh, right down the middle of the political lane. They didn't blame one side or the other, Republican, Democrat, you know, Pelosi, Trump. They basically just said, look, you know, this is uh, having a, a real impact on, on our shipmates and, uh, and it's got to stop. So, um, and those those articles got picked up by other media outlets as they well. They did. Admiral Allen was uh, interviewed on NPR a couple of days after we published. Um, the Atlantic picked up Admiral Zukunft's piece this week um, and, and reprinted a, a large section of it and linked to our website. Um, we're waiting to see what will happen with uh, Admiral Thomas's piece. You were mentioning just before we uh, started the show that the service chiefs, the Navy, Marine Corps, Coast Guard, Navy, Marine Corps, Army, and Air Force service chiefs are all tweeting their support. And uh, the chairman as and well. And the chairman uh, for the Coast Guard and for um, you know the, the the need for the nation's political leaders to find a way to get to yes, you know, to to figure out this impasse and put the IRS, the TSA. The Coast Guard, the Department of Homeland Security, the federal judiciary, you name it, you know, there's a significant part of the U.S. government that is not able to operate, which is having, you know, real impacts on our society, on our national security, and on those who provide for our national security. So it's a real problem. And I'm happy that we were able to get those important voices out and heard and in in the national debate quickly uh, to hopefully have an impact uh, on, on the political leaders. So so that's what's happening uh, with proceedings and, uh, and the Naval Institute. And uh, we, I really hope that, uh, that all of this is, uh, has you know, been resolved before West so that when we're, you know, people are trying to get to San Diego for West, uh, that the TSA uh, slowdown is, is not impacting it. And, uh, you know, we're back to, back to ops normal. So, uh, well, yeah, speaking of that, the, Coast Guard Commandant, as we mentioned um, at SNA last week, uh, skipped his part of uh, the, his appearance because of the shutdown. So I imagine he would do the same if the shutdown is still going on at West. He probably would not show up. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. So um, I uh, yeah. second your hope that it's all over with by then. Um, so previous episode of the podcast, we talked to Trent Hone about uh, his book, which Learning War. Um, has been on the CNO's uh, must-read list this uh, season, if you will, and that book covers the period from 1898 to 1941. So on this episode, our guest is the author of the prequel, if you will. It's called Progressives in Navy Blue, Maritime Strategy, American Empire, and the Transformation of U.S. Naval Identity, 1873 to 1898. The show's good friend, Captain Scott Mobley, USN Retired. Scott, Thanks for calling into the Proceedings Podcast today. Well, thanks, Lord and Bill. I'm delighted to be here. So you're up there in uh, chilly Wisconsin. Uh, what, what are you doing up there? Uh, I'm sitting in my office looking at about uh, a foot of snow on the ground. We had about we had a dump last night, about six inches. So uh, after, this, after we talk today, I get to go out and, and clear the driveway. <laughs> well, that's what you get for moving <laughs> to Wisconsin. Just so the audience yeah. knows, Scott was my basic neighbor. He lived a few houses down here in Annapolis uh, during his time of being a distinguished, uh, holding a distinguished chair in the history department here at the Naval Academy, his alma mater, our alma mater. Um, and then he uh, he got ambitious and, and uh, took a job at the University of Wisconsin. Um, so that's what you get for, uh, for being an achiever. Uh, I guess so. So uh, Scott, talk a little bit about what the term progressive. So your book is called Progressives in Navy Blue. 1873 to 1898. Um, tell tell the audience what 
what you mean by progressives? What are, the term uh, describes what I call small p progressivism. Big p progressivism today is a p- kind of a political orientation. But back in the late 19th century, it, it was different. It was uh, basically a, a way of solving problems that, that utilized credentialed professional experts, uh, adapted scientific me- methodology to solving problems. And by that, I mean it used critical fact-based inquiry, uh, uh, worked to develop uh, added adaptive and adjustment, adjustive uh, habits of mind, continuous improvement, continuous feedback loop, and also emphasized discursive or cooperative problem solving. And, and so it's kind of a way of, of looking at the world and trying to figure out how to, uh, how to transform, how to solve problems. And the naval officers of the late 19th century, U.S. naval officers, uh, pretty much embraced that, that ideology, the ideology of progressivism. And, uh, and so that's what my story is about. Uh, what's interesting is that most other professions didn't become progressive in the sense I described until after 1900. They call that the progressive era, the first couple of decades of the 20th century. But what we're seeing here is these, these Navy guys are, are thinking progressively and acting progressively, uh, as early as the 1880s and maybe even 1870s. So the Navy was kind of at the, the, the spearhead of, of this movement, and uh, which is kind of exciting because a lot of folks kind of stereotype the armed forces, the Navy and the other armed forces, as being a bit conservative and, and uh, backward thinking. But instead, these officers were very forward thinking. So the book starts in uh, sort of 1873, which is eight years after the end of the Civil War. Uh, there's some really interesting uh, insights in it about what the Navy looked like in 1873. Uh, so talk a little bit about that. What was the need for change that these progressive naval officers saw? Uh, what was the state of the fleet, um, both in, in 1865, if you can just kind of give a quick summary of what, what the U.S. Navy looked like as the Civil War was drawing to a close, and then what did it look like, you know, eight years later? Well, at the end of the Civil War, we had arguably uh, the most powerful Navy in the world, or maybe the second most powerful after the Royal Navy. Certainly the Royal Navy took notice. Uh, we had almost seven ships, 700 ships uh, in active service, uh, many of which were cutting-edge technology for the day. Think of the, the monitors and, uh, and the uh, other ironclad ships and, and the steam technology. The Navy was predominantly steam-powered. At that point, uh, and that's the Navy that, that won the Civil War. Um, five years later, it's uh, the Navy's back down to about 40 ships. It's normal peacetime strength. And uh, most of the ships are, are wood and uh, sail-powered primarily, still had auxiliary steam power. But they uh, they looked a lot like the ships of the Navy from the War of 1812, the Constitution. Broadside weapons, sail power, wooden hulls. Uh, so the Navy kind of... Uh, set aside that, that high tech after the war ended and their peacetime mission, which was primarily a commercial mission, not a warfighting mission, uh, only called for this, 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 um, more, this older technology. So, uh, and most of these ships were built during the civil war or before the civil war. So by the 1870s, they're starting to wear out. And, uh, and so the Navy faces a problem where it's, it's a much smaller force than, uh, it was during the war 
Uh, we're starting to see uh, changes in the world that uh, demand more modern, more and more modern ships, and uh, officers grew concerned. In, in fact, that when you, you know, I was reflecting on the, the theme for the, the West Conference, sharpening competitive edge, and the, the, the term uh, competing globally, well, that's what these, these uh, naval leaders wanted to do, what, that they felt they needed to do um, in the 1870s. Yeah, so there was no means really for them to do this uh, that existed heretofore. So what specifically and who specifically uh, started to carry out this, uh, this, uh, this renaissance, this, this, this progressive uh, movement that, that you write about? Well, it, it wasn't any one person. It was basically a collection of naval officers. Um, I picked 1873 as the start date because that's the founding of the Naval Institute. And with that organization coming into being, all of a sudden, naval officers were talking together in ways they never had before and began to realize together that that change needed to happen. And, and what they're seeing is a, a world of rapid technological uh, advancement a world where uh, of growing international churn and uncertainty in a world in which divisive domestic politics um, was was hindering any any notion of moving ahead. And if that sounds familiar, it's because it is. Uh, <laughs> it pretty much describes our, our world today. Uh, so they're facing very similar problems. And by this developing this professional dialogue, um, what I saw in my research is by the early 1880s, um, just about if you were a naval officer, you were progressive. Um, you know, there's some, if you look in the historiography, you know, with this, the scholarship of this era, often it's depicted as a, a, a struggle between kind of young Turks against the uh, reactionary old guard. But, uh, and maybe in the early 1870s, you could say that, but certainly by the early 1880s, that was not the case. Uh, we had uh, pretty much the entire officer corps, at least the, the leaders and the thought leaders, we're thinking very progressively. Now, there were two flavors of progressivism that I can go, a progressive thought that I'll go, I can go into in a couple of minutes, but um, pretty much the whole officer corps was moving ahead. And I think that was largely because of this professional discourse that had developed um, thanks to the Naval Institute and to other uh, venues as well. And um, now keep in mind, too, that the officer corps at that period was quite small, maybe about uh, – 3,000 officers at any one time. So everyone literally knew everyone else. So talking was a bit easier than it would be today. So 40-odd um, ships in the Navy in that, you know, 1873 time, time frame. Uh, and you mentioned in the book uh, that, that most of them are forward deployed. They're out in these squadrons in the Atlantic. In the, the, there's the Asiatic fleet, there's a Mediterranean fleet, there's an Eastern Pacific fleet off the southern coast of, uh, of South America, or sorry, the west coast, west coast of South America. Um, and, and they're largely out there to protect US, the U.S. merchant fleet, you know, the trade that, that the, the young country has become dependent on. Uh, and, and you describe it in your book as it's the Peace Navy. Uh, and so, you know, talk a little bit about that and then the thinking, the strategic thinking that comes across in your book as these progressives are thinking about what the Navy needs to be um, and how they need how it needs to transform to be prepared for this unsettled world, this world that is moving ahead 
technologically very rapidly and other na- other nations are building navies uh, much more much bigger and more capable than the US Navy. So if you look uh, way back to the uh, the founding of the United States, uh, there never was a lot of support for a large navy during peacetime, um, just like there wasn't support for a large army. Um, and in fact, the navy uh, disappeared shortly after the Revolutionary War. And it was only it was only uh, reborn in the 1890s uh, as a result of um, attacks on American commerce. So very early on, the civilian leadership realizes the, the importance of the Navy as a commerce, commerce-protecting force. And really, uh, for those first almost 100 years of its existence, that's what the Navy was primarily. It was a force designed and uh, constructed for commerce protection. And, and if there was a war, obviously they had war fighting skills, but that was a secondary mission. And um, if you look at the wars that took place in the 19th century up, up until the very end, um, those wars, uh, we, what we saw when the war was, was declared, war broke out, the nation had to build a whole other navy to fight the war. Um, and, you know, with, with better technology, larger numbers. So I, I kind of think that the way I look at it is that the Peace Navy was a, a small nucleus of the war navy, but it really was a completely different navy that fought these wars in 1812, the Mexican War, the Civil War. It was a completely different navy um, for for the duration, and then it reverted back to this this uh, peacetime commercial mission. So you have a Peace Navy, yeah. and there's this sense that because of America's geographic isolation, you know, surrounded by oceans, water on all sides, that that if there's going to be a war, that there's time to build that war navy, you know, and then have the war. We don't have to have a long, uh, a standing large navy. Right. And that that perspective was deep-seated in kind of the American political strategic psyche. And uh, even after the Civil War, it persisted, which is why the Navy reverted from that huge 700-ship high-tech fleet to a 40-active-duty uh, sailing ship force that was once again forward-deployed uh, for protecting commerce. But what's happening in the 1870s, uh, naval officers, as you would expect, and, and certain civilian leaders as well, beginning to sense there's a change going on in the world. A lot of it's driven by technology. And one of the things that people begin to, that professionals begin, Navy professionals begin to realize is that, you know, we can't build this Navy. We're not going to have uh, several months or years to build up a Navy if a war happens. It, we're pretty much going to have to fight with what we have. And part of that is because now a fleet can cross the Atlantic in a matter of, of days, not months. And, and oh, by the way, it takes years to build these, these modern, uh, steel ships. And, um, and so what well, we begin to see them thinking about the technology that will be needed to defend the nation. And we're also seeing them thinking about strategy for the first time, uh, and strategies that that fleet might employ to defend the nation. To that point, and it's just amazing how analogous this dynamic is to what's going on right now. It's kind of scary, actually. But on page 44, you have a really cool graph that shows that the budget for the Navy was about 120, I'm just guessing because it's between some lines, 125, let's say, million in 1865. And then in essence, it went down to zero in 1866. And so never mind what they wanted, it's what were they funded for? Right. And so the, these budget struggles that we deal right. with today are not new. 
the this era of the Gilded Age and the 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 progressives was very much wrestling with low budgets. Absolutely, and although that zero was kind of an anomaly, the reason it zeroed out is because that was that's funding appropriated by Congress, and uh, since the war, the Civil War ended in the middle of 1865. Uh, and all of a sudden, the, the demand for, you know, the, the funding demand diminished considerably at the end of the war. What the Secretary of War, Gideon Wells, did is he carried over the 1860, I guess he must have gotten permission from Congress, carry over 1865 money in 1866. So it looks like a zero, but there was actually, the actual month span was probably closer to the the numbers you're seeing uh, from 1867 on. But, and so then, but again, to scale it, it went to, to about a baseline of about 20 million instead of 120 million um, or upwards right. of in the height of the civil war, it was 150, 140 million. Um, so, you know, yeah. you talk about, Hey, we need to build this future thinking force. This reminds me of the 355 ship Navy, by the way, but we're not funded to do so. And do we have the infrastructure in the wake of the Civil War and everybody detooling and refocusing and the peace dividend and war weary and all this sort of stuff, you know, how are we postured to, to handle these emerging threats uh, across the Atlantic? Well, you know, what's interesting, too, is when we when the, the Navy did start to rebuild and started to introduce these high tech ships. And it was in uh, the mid 1880s that the, the fleet was kind of reborn, that the, they began to retire these aging Civil War wooden steamships and began to build modern steam-powered uh, vessels with turned uh, main batteries. and I mean, things that look like, one of the things I like to do is I take a slide showing a ship that was built in the early 1870s and then one built uh, 10 years later and I compare that to technology. And the, the, the 1870 ship looks like the Golden Hinds, Sir Francis Drake ship. And then the um, the ship, uh, the 1880, mid-1880 ship looks a lot like the Zumwalt, the Zumwalt class. So the point here is that that we're, we're adopting technology that would fundamentally uh, is the way we build ships today. I'm not talking about the, the high tech, the electronics and, and that stuff, but the actual hull design and, and that sort of thing that emerged in, in this period. And um, what's interesting, too, if you look at the budget, is that it doesn't it goes up and down as budgets do, but there's no fundamental rise in the budget into the 1890s. So the Navy is starting to build this new fleet um, within the budget, you know, those, that 20000 or $20 million a year budget that, that, that Congress was willing to authorize. And what, why that worked is because it was becoming so expensive to maintain the, the aging Civil War era ships that, that they, uh, they were sucking up such a, a big chunk of the, you know, the maintenance budget was so high um, there was no room for for new new uh, new construction. So, um, as they replaced the older fleet, they were able to to redivert fund, divert funds into new construction, and, and so that was pretty ingenious the way the Navy did that. You know, they didn't get any more money for it; they were just able to direct it in a different way. So in, maybe there's lessons for us today. There. Oh yeah, absolutely. And uh, you know the the repetition of history or at least the the rhyming of history from your book to what we're seeing today is just it's really incredible i, I, was, I mean what scott just said was yeah. the, the logic behind getting rid of the f-14 yeah yeah right you're sucking up too much of the maintenance <laughs> right. budget. Yeah. right um yeah. uh so on page uh 81 to 83 or four or so you you describe 
an article that was written by a guy named uh, Theodorus Bailey Myers Mason, uh, which was a ah oh, yeah uh, it, it was it was a um, he essentially sets out um, a storyline of. Uh, you know, it's really two stories, and it, the, the article was called Two Lessons from the Future, written by or, you know, penned by this notional uh, Lieutenant Nosam, um, and he's recalling, you know, from being uh, a prisoner of war uh, in this fictional country the off the, off the uh, in the North Atlantic waters near this country called Katy. Uh, he's a lieutenant in an American flagship, the USS Franklin. He found himself in the thick of the fray. Uh, you know, the, they they lose the battle. He becomes a prisoner of war, and he's writing letters back. Um, and it just reminded me so much of the prize-winning uh, essay that we published last May by Captain Dale Relodge that was titled How We Lost the Great Pacific War. And Dale's essay last year you know, looked at a future, not too distant future war with China, although he doesn't use the word China in his in his essay, but it was the prize winning essay from the general prize essay contest. And, and, you know, the very much was from the same school, you know, take, take a, a you know, a thought about future warfare, uh, project the current Navy into it, think about how it's going to do, and then, and then um, project how the Navy might do if you made different choices. And so this piece by Mason that you described this two lessons from the future, uh, which was presented at the Naval Institute's Annapolis chapter in April 7, 1876, just sounds so prescient and so similar to what uh, Dale Relog wrote last, last year. Uh, it was almost, uh, you know, it was a little bit eerie to read it. I, too, uh, made that connection. And uh, I actually mentioned to Dale, I, I told him about this article, and uh, I don't know if you ever went back and read it, because now the Naval Institute has all the back issues available online. But uh, it if you remember, if you remember, right? Similar. <laughs> yeah. It was it was eerily similar. I mean, just I'm sitting there at the at the annual meeting, and and he's talking about his work, and I'm just, you know, all this, I'm have chills going down my spine. and say, my God, it's like I'm not going to say history repeats itself because it doesn't. Yeah, but it is very interesting how at this moment uh, with a situation in, in you know, the Navy's uh, operating context and, and is the same or very similar to uh, that period. And we're seeing an article using the same literary technique. Yeah. History, history may not repeat itself, but the lessons of history are relevant and they're hyper relevant right. these days. So Scott, you're just now, talking about two schools of progressive thought. Um, what were those? Okay, I, I discerned these two schools in the, uh, in the writings and the, and the debates going on uh, within the, the, the officer corps, which incidentally is a difference, well, a difference between now and then is, you know, going back to the, the, uh, the two tales from the future um, uh, article in, in the, the article that Dale wrote is that um, published in the proceedings, with that article is a discussion that happened at the Naples chapter afterwards. So they're talking about it. I don't know if we see those types of discussions today. I know in my career, it was really hard to sit down with my fellow officers and have these kind of insightful conversations uh, just because the demands of the workday intervened. Well, but, so that's an interesting, so, you said the Annapolis chapter. So we had chapters of the Naval Institute back then. Where yeah. were the other chapters? Yeah. Uh, they were most of the major home ports. Okay. Uh, sometimes if you're looking for seatings, they actually uh, publish papers delivered in the other chapters and some of the discussion 
you know, the comment and discussion section was actually a discussion that happened in a room with everybody after the paper was, was finished. So, um, so I would say at least on the East coast, there was, there's Boston, New York. I don't know about Norfolk, although I suspect there was. Um, so there, there were chapters scattered around, um, you know, different, uh, fleet concentration areas. Interesting. But, um, well, to, to jump back to the, the progressive, uh, ideologies, what, what I saw emerge were these two, two schools of thought. Um, one I call mechanism and all the other I call uh, strategy. Now, mechanism were forward-thinking officers that really valued technology and the ability to uh, design, build, operate, and maintain that technology. And um, that was very much in thinking with the progressive uh, framework that I discussed with you before. But they thought that that uh, at least the, the more avid um, adherence to that school of thought um, believed that, that we should put all of our resources in that and, you know, building this new fleet and operating it. And that the strategy piece, you know, the, 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 the theories, and, uh, the tactics, the strategy, all that would just come naturally just by practice. So their, their, their um, outlook was very technological, very uh, technocratic, and, and, uh, you know, they, they valued in the debates, and the book talks a lot about this, the debates for professional, uh, military education, uh, you know, after the, the service academy, after the naval academy, what kind of school, what kind of education should officers have? They very much favored a STEM, uh, education, basically a graduate education in STEM for naval officers. The other school of thought was, uh, what I call strategy, and that was not so much you know, what this technology should look like and, you know, how do we make it work? It was more, what should we do with it? You know, what's the best way to leverage, you know, what kind of technology do we need and how should we leverage that technology to uh, basically achieve national goals? And, uh, and those were the strategists and uh, they, the most well-known of, of strategists of all is of course, Alfred Thayer Mahan, his mentor, Eva Luce, but there were really dozens of other officers that were uh, that helped to develop that that school of thought, and what's interesting too is that there were many officers who straddled both schools. So they were they advocated uh, advanced technology and the strategy to use it. Uh, the, the best example of that is Bradley Fisk, who was a young officer in the 1870s, but he, he grew into you know more. He became a leader of the Navy uh, in the early 1900s. So we had these two schools of thought, a lot of overlap, but when it came to uh, Basically, uh, utilizing those very limited budgets that we talked about before, that's where we saw friction, where advocates of one school or the other would want uh, resources for its program. And so there was a lot of infighting. Uh, and the best place to uh, see how that played out is at the Naval War College in the fight over um, uh, advanced uh, edu- you know, postgraduate education for naval officers. Well, Trent's book uh, talks about, you know, the learning war talks about the insurgents. And you've just named three of them, which is Mahan, Luce, and Fisk. I think, again, the lesson for uh, members and potential members of the Naval Institute is thought leadership starts at a young age. Um, All these folks who were the great 20th century uh, leaders of doctrine and technology and tactics and strategy were very much thought leaders in their J.O. years uh, during the uh, 
the early part of this uh, this time frame that you you deal with in your book it's really uh um uh, you know eye opening to me um how these guys just didn't come out of nowhere they were always sort of this uh very cerebral very uh very much very well written um and very much involved in solving the navy navy's existential problems using the uh the primary means of the day which was proceedings magazine um it's just right. uh, fantastic and- one thing I would add is that these thought leaders existed not just in the, you know, the well-known strategic school, which is people like, um, Luce and Mahan, but there are also people in the, in the other school, the, me- the mechanism school. And in fact, uh, my research shows that about three quarters of the articles and proceedings during these years were about, about science, technology, and uh, engineering. And maybe there was about a third that had to talk about tactics and, uh, and strategy. So STEM was very much, uh, on people's minds back then. I think that a lot of those, the leaders of that side of the equation were not as well written. They didn't write as well as the hand and loose. So we don't know about them as much, uh, today. And one of the things I think my book does is it, it kind of resurrects our under, or it, it changes our understanding of, of these other people, these other officers who uh, were not quite as outspoken, and, and it brings them up to the same level as, as the, the well-known hands and looses. And, uh, you know, so that's another way to look at this. I'm curious, how did these progressive leaders, how did they find traction or gain traction with political leaders, with, with those in Congress who could control uh, the budget for the Navy and how that, you know, how those budget, budgetary authorities were directed towards shipbuilding or technology or propulsion or schools, um, you know, how did that happen? Was there, were they knocking on an open door at the time? Was it easy for them to convince uh, the nation's political leaders that we needed uh, a stronger, more technologically savvy, you know, uh, better armed uh, Navy? Or was it, did they have to, um, did they have to fight for it? They had to fight for it, um, but they had friends. In, in, in Congress and in the executive, uh, with various administrations. Um, I would say that the, you know, there's this traditional outlook of, of, uh, you know, low military budgets. We don't need, we don't want large armed forces. We're, we're, uh, you know, we're kind of anti-military or political culture, at least up until, uh, World War II. Um, and that was very much in play back then. So that they had a lot of convincing had to happen. And the way, you know, this is a really good lesson in civil military relations in a democracy. What happened is that these, these leaders and, uh, of the different schools identified people in Congress that for whatever reason shared their interest. Um, it's pretty complicated. Sometimes it was just pork barrel politics. I have a shipyard in my district, so that makes me interested. Other times there was a more sincere, uh, interest in national defense. Uh, and, and, you know, there's a, you know, a number of different reasons these, these, uh, these groups resonated with each other. But each of the thought, schools of thought, the mechanists and the strategists, uh, basically allied with, uh, people in Congress, uh, mostly leaders on the, the House Naval Affairs Committee, which was very powerful back then. And then those, uh, congressional leaders would take it, take their arguments to the floor. And it took years and years to convince their colleagues, but in time, they succeeded in doing that. And part of it, I think, was this growing notion that the U.S. was suddenly 
um, vulnerable to outside attacks uh, based on the the uh, advances in technology that we talked about before, and also because the world situation was changing and the U.S. was becoming more involved in the world, and we aspired to a leadership position. We're moving from kind of a regional power outlook to a, a world power outlook, outlook, and there was thought that um, you know that engagement might involve us in conflict more than what we had seen before. So um, over the course of the 1880s and 1890s, um, you know, the leaders in Congress that had allied with the, the groups within the Navy made their case. And, and uh, there's some interesting uh, just uh, narrative in the book about the fight over the Naval War College because um, each had its own congressional sponsors. The, the Naval War College did. Plus, there were other options that were being supported by people from the mechanist side of the, of the Navy. And uh, there were years when the Naval War College had no funding. It just survived uh, due to friends at the Navy Department that managed to, you know, senior naval leaders that supported it just sound money in their budgets and kind of shuffled it around within the department to keep the war college going. Um, so it was very part, much part of that competition between mechanism and strategy. And it played out in, in the halls of Congress and in the executive, too. Different administrations would come and go, and, and the Navy had uh, better or worse uh, a better or worse go of it uh, during that time. Although I would say by the late 1800s, it was pretty much uh, the political consensus in the country, the bipartisan consensus supported uh, growing and modernizing the Navy. So by that time period, I think they were out of the woods, at least for a while. Uh, that's fascinating. We uh, we need to wrap up here shortly, but uh, I had one more question, which is something that I think anybody that served in the Navy in the last 30 years has seen. And it, it seems to me that the roots of it are in this period that you dedicate your book towards, which is the friction between warrior engineers and engineer warriors, the the, the, you know, here at the Naval Academy, it's always, you know, what percentage of the Naval Academy class is, has got to be STEM right. majors and what percentage gets to be, you know, um, English. Bull majors. You know, bull majors, as, we, as I called myself or we, we called ourselves, right? Political science, English, history, uh, economics, etc. Um, and so that that seems that that debate or that uh, that tension seems to have originated in this uh, in this time period when people realize that hey we need to have uh you know warships are going to be more technical we need to have engineers we need to have professional engineers and so the balance of uh of you know between engineers and technicians and strategists or or uh, mariners if you will tacticians um you know it, it sort of dates back to that time frame that's an an interesting thing that you seem to you know found and brought out in your yeah, research yeah. and that kind of goes to the heart of the book too and uh, if we have time i'll give you the backstory there but what's going on in the late uh, 19th century is that you know we had this traditional culture which came from that that um commercial oriented peace navy which I call the uh, Mariner Warrior, which was uh, a, a profession that valued seamanship above all uh, in ways that we wouldn't understand today. Although given recent uh, events, maybe uh, a bigger, a greater dose of seamanship would be helpful. Uh, but seamanship was, was how you made your, your professional name and, uh, and tactical things like uh, fighting a single ship and landing parties and stuff like that. Those were the skills. But with this new world of the late 19th century, um, what grew out of the, this tension between the mechanists and the strategists is what I call the 
warrior engineer, or you could call it a strategist engineer. And, and that really is the modern naval profession, the profession we know today, and the tension we know today between, you know, bull majors, stem majors, and, and that sort of thing. And if you look at continuing the, the history here, and Mark Hagerot did a real nice job of that in his uh, dissertation, his PhD dissertation, basically what we see is that that warrior engineer flip-flops between war engineer and engineer warrior um, all, all through the 20th century. Arguably now we're kind of in an engineer warrior phase. And, uh, and so those tensions are still there. And, yeah, and, and so you also good. you also bring out the fact that 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 tension even and the need to be a, a technician to understand your war machine, that that helped further right. further divide the Navy into the tribes, you know, the submariners and the aviators and the SWOs. Oh, yeah, yeah. Right. And you, 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 you subdivide because of those cultures and the need to understand and be a master of that machine that you are, you know, driving, flying, you know, sailing, whatever. Right. The technology becomes more specialized. And even within uh, communities, there's sub, I was a surface nuke, for example, slow nuke. Yep. And, uh, and I, I lived, that's what got me interested in this story was I wanted to figure out where I came from. I was a history major at the Naval Academy, but I was also a surface nuke. And I was living both of these worlds. I saw all through my career, this tension between, humanities and STEM. So uh, pulling the strings, I found it, it all began back at the end of the 19th century. That's fascinating. What, what year did you start working on, on this, on this book? Um, I started working in earnest in uh, 2013 and I finished it uh, at the end of 2015. It was my, it was my PhD dissertation. I got, after I retired, I uh, got a PhD in history at the university of Wisconsin. So um, it took me a, a good, years of, of solid effort to, to get it uh, churned out. Fantastic. Yeah, it's an impressive effort. And uh, for those who uh, undertake to read it, I'll, I'll point out that the notes section starts on page 271, and there's roughly 100 pages of, of end notes here. So it is really well researched. And, uh, you know, some there's some great tidbits uh, sprinkled among the among the notes. So, um, Scott, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Uh, for our listeners, uh, the book is called Progressives in Navy Blue, Maritime Strategy, American Empire, and the Transformation of U.S. Naval Identity from 1873 to 1898. Uh, the author is uh, Captain U.S. Navy retired Scott Mobley. Uh, he is a member of the Naval Institute's Naval History Advisory Board. Uh, and uh, it's just been great com uh, conversing with you today about this uh, about this book. And we hope that, uh, like Trent Hone's book, we hope that it does really well and that lots of people who are on active duty today, uh, you know, endeavor to read it because, you know, the story is just incredible. It's a it's a part of uh, the Navy's story that I think most of us were are, are you know, very limited awareness of it. Uh, and you bring out, uh, you know, this this uh, tension and the transformation that the Navy went through in that 25-year uh, period, uh, starting with the founding of the Naval Institute in 1873. So it's just a, it's a great story. Thanks for writing it and for uh, publishing it with the Naval Institute Press uh, and for uh, for joining us today, Scott. So if you uh, enjoy the podcast, please uh, consider being a member of the Naval Institute if you're not already. This podcast is, is powered by uh, your membership. Also, uh, we, uh, and Bill doesn't know this, but we've changed the theme music um, for the uh, podcast 
And so uh, I'd like to thank uh, my friend uh, Steve Morse of the Disky Dregs for uh, uh, his uh, consideration in letting us use uh, this new theme song, which is really cool. And uh, as always, victory begins at the Naval Institute. We will see you next week. Mm-hmm.